Welcome to episode 18 of the Media Sport podcast series. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. The 2016 Summer Paralympic Games in Rio de Janeiro are just under four months away, making it a good time to examine the significance of these games and the complex and contested messages about impairment and disability communicated by them. Today I'm joined by a guest whose athletic achievements, scholarly insights and social activism make her ideally positioned to comment on why the Paralympics and disability sport more generally matters and how they relate to a critical disability studies perspective. Danielle Pears is a postdoctoral fellow in communication studies at Concordia University in Canada and shortly will be taking up a post at the University of Alberta in the Physical Education and Recreation Department. Now, before I attempt a brief summary of her biography, I recommend that everyone listening look up her website, www.daniellepears.com. Pears spelled P-E-E-R-S. This site offers a, a comprehensive sense of her impressive achievements and the sheer breadth of her activities. Danielle is a former Paralympian, having won a bronze medal in wheelchair basketball at the 2004 Athens Paralympics. Among a long list of awards and medals, she has also won a world championship and five national championships. In 2006, she was named the world's most valuable player and was a finalist in the 2007 International Sportswoman of the Year. And here's the thing. I knew none of this when I came across Danielle's research on Paralympism, disability sport, critical disability studies and crip and queer theory. I've been reading a lot about the Paralympics and disability for a piece I'm writing with another former guest of the podcast, Jared Goggin, from episode 10, who appeared with Larissa Horth. Danielle's articles in journals such as Disability and Society, Journal of Sport and Social Issues, and Qualitative Research in Sport and Exercise stood out for a couple of reasons. First, they present a direct voice prepared to confront the complexities and contradictions of the Paralympic movement and the ways in which popular narratives about it are structured and perpetuated. It is a much-needed approach that recalls a long history of critical theory and perspectives in the humanities and serves to demonstrate why critical disability studies is such a rich and important area of research, politics and activism. And second, rather than trying to resolve or explain these contradictions away, Danielle's analysis builds on and works with the mutually dependent tensions between contending discourses around the Paralympics. For example, those stressing heroic, progressive and empowering perspectives on Paralympians and recalling various images of so-called supercrips, and others involving the marginalisation of, of tragic, passive and anonymous disabled citizens. Now, weaving throughout these narratives are the voices and resistances of Paralympic athletes themselves as they are subject to and experience elite sport systems and enter into media related to the games and the presentation of them. It's challenging research in the best sense of the term and I learnt much from it. Danielle's scholarship also correct, connects directly to her activism and work as a disability and queer community organiser and in giving expression to her political commitments she has made seven activist-oriented films and co-founded not one but two art collectives, King Crip Productions and Cripsy. I could go on, but it's enough to say that I'm really excited to be speaking with her. Danielle, thanks for joining me for the Media Sport podcast series. It's such a pleasure. I'd like to start just by discussing the trajectory of your athletic career. 
you start started playing what you quite rightly call stand-up basketball ball before becoming a wheelchair basketball player. What attracted you to basketball in the first place, and, and how did your career then unfold? Um, I, I really fell in love. I mean, I started playing basketball at 10. I'd played a number of other sports before, but I was really drawn to the creativity. I love, I love this sounds odd from someone who played an elite sport, but I don't really love competition. <laughs> so... Um, I love the sports that were really collaborative and creative, and I think that's what kept me really interested. Um, so yeah, I fell in love with basketball, played all the way up to college level with um, pretty significant um, knee and hip problems throughout. Um, and then it was actually by the time I was playing college ball, I was um, able to play but once a week, so I used to help coach during the week and then play games on the weekend. Um, and... And at the end of a couple of years of that, the doctors just said they were, I wasn't allowed to play anymore. But interestingly, my very last game uh, in my hometown of Edmonton, this woman comes up to me and asks, uh, what's wrong with me? Because I have big piles of ice on my knees. And, and um, I'd always been told, well, I have, you know, patella tendinitis, these three or four muscle imbalances, just nothing particular. And she said, oh, will you keep playing? And I said, no, I, I have to retire for this year. And then she, this big smile comes across her face, and she says, oh, have I got a sport for you? <laughs> and she uh, uh, picked me up the next week and took me to wheelchair basketball for the first time and explained to me how half the people who play in Canada are, are considered able-bodied. Anyone basically can play within Canada. And I played for three years until someone actually in wheelchair basketball noticed how I walked. I've always had a very strange walk. Um, and uh, suggested I go see a neurologist. <laughs> and the neurologist very quickly um, diagnosed you know, problems I've had since I was seven years old, all part of a neuromuscular condition called muscular dystrophy. Um, so it's kind of funny. You know, I, I wheel into the doctor's office, and he's telling me this story. <laughs> and... Um, he, or he says, you know, I, I have some bad news for you. You have muscular dystrophy. And you know, this smile creeps on my face because in my own sport, um, you can't play on the national team. You can't try out for the national team. You can't play at the highest levels unless you have a diagnosis. And uh, so in my mind, nothing changed because as soon as you name something, it just meant that I had access to all these new forms of with new level of sport. So I... Uh, <laughs> Uh, took the diagnosis, pretty happy at the beginning. It's not that there aren't a lot of complicated things around having a degenerative disability in a very ableist world, but um, but yeah, that basically enabled me to try out for the national team. So I spent the next two years training basically every hour with network and made the national team in 2003. And you then went on to compete at world championships and the Paralympics. And I was you wrote a, a fascinating article and you wrote of internalising a by turn coherent and incoherent identity as a disabled Paralympian. What are you getting at by that term internalisation? What does it involve and how is it structured by disability sport cultures in the Paralympics? I think what's really interesting is I think most people imagine disability as something that happens to you. Like most, most films and shows about Paralympics or ads are like you, you hear, you see this picture of a kid happily playing and then you hear this crash sound and then you have sirens. And certainly there are some people who get disabilities through, get impairments rather through um, sort of an accident with a date and so on. But the vast majority of people, that's, that's not how it works. It's, um, it's sort of like growing. You can't really say today, oh, I grew one one hundredth of an inch today. Um, there are processes that happen slowly. And so to come 
to having an identity as a disabled person from not having it when you have a slowly degenerative condition is, 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 a, is a process, right? And it's a social process. I mean, as much as your body is shifting, also the ways that people are reading your body is shifting. But unfortunately, within sport, um, it's all built around rules and guidelines that are very, um, very strict. So, um, and for the most part, with wheelchair basketball, actually almost all Paralympic sport, are built around the kinds of bodies that were disabled in post-World War II. So, um, you know, wheelchair basketball is almost entirely built around levels of spinal cord uh, injury. Uh, and so if I'm gonna, someone who doesn't have spinal cord injury not going to come play the game, I almost have to like make my body seem like it fits within um, the kinds of ways that someone with spinal cord injury is expected to move and function. So it's a very strange game where in order to play you have a disability, so you have a right to play the game, but in order to play the game and fit within the sort of rules and classifications, you have to in some ways perform as if you have a disability that's different than the one you do. Um, and so it's a very odd um, and sort of strange setup that sets up a lot of tensions where athletes get called cheaters and all kinds of things, but there's almost no other way to exist in the sport, right? It's a very liminal space. And it's interesting watching a, a, a spectacle like the Paralympics around, because of course, the, the complex politics of classification is, is something that's not really covered or discussed. It's not seen in that coverage. And it's something that comes through in the literature that, you know, that the Paralympics represents a certain range of impairments and disabilities, but far from all of them. Is, and, and is that sort of this notion of how embodiment works that there's different, it almost has a disciplining effect in terms of classifications? Yeah, I mean, entirely. Classifications that we like to joke is sort of the figure skating of wheelchair sport in the sense of, you know, there's such a subject of these judges get to now decide your fate, right? You suddenly get classed, you know, you get classed in wheelchair basketball between a 0 and 4.5 based on your functional capacity. So someone who has the capacity to lean in all directions and come back up with other hands might be a 4.5. But if someone is quite subjective in some ways, so someone gets knocked down to 4, it can entirely change their career, or they get bumped up a 0.5 higher and they might get cut. So there's like a lot at stake with athletes. And of course, these classifications, again, are really based on the function of someone's spinal cord injury. So if you have an amputation or uh, muscular dystrophy or MS or any number of conditions, um, your body doesn't actually fit within those rules to begin with. So that's awkward. Um, and this is where the internalization comes in. Is if you want to play, you have to, in some ways, perform... <laughs> Um, as if your spinal cord has a, have a spinal cord injury, um, and after a while, um, you start to sort of police yourself because the people around you are policing you. And this is what's really interesting about Foucault is, I mean, he really clearly talks about this with prisoners, but you can see it happening so clearly in wheelchair basketball. And, and is that if you feel like you're constantly being watched, um, you very quickly start to watch yourself and police yourself, and that's where the internalization comes in. So. If I'm wheeling down the street, even outside of sport, if I'm wheeling out down outside the street and I get out of my wheelchair to put my wheelchair in the car, people will often yell at me, faker, or come up and, you know, like, there's, there's a lot of aggression. So there's, I mean, people really have this idea of disability in their head that, like, everyone who uses a wheelchair has, has a complete spinal cord injury and cannot move their legs, when the reality is the vast majority of people who use wheelchairs do have some motion or feeling in their legs and don't, don't spend their entire day every day in a wheelchair, right? 
Um, but we really have, I mean, kind of like gender, we have this incredible binary notion of disability that makes it very difficult, makes you very sort of police socially and even more so in the nature of sport if you don't perform like the sort of social ideas of spinal cord injury. Um, and this is even more so, I mean, some of my research now is really getting into is if you look at the history of where these sports come from, it makes a lot of sense. Um, coming out of World War II, the most popular um, injuries were um, loss of sight uh, and uh, amputation and spinal cord injury. So a lot of um, sports, wheelchair sports, are based around those bodies. But if you look at now in Canada, those bodies collectively make up less than 10% of disabled people. So you have basically the entire sports system is designed to serve, even if every person with a disability, with those three dis forms of disability played sport, the entire sports system is designed to serve only 10% of people with disabilities. Um, and so anyone else who even wants to access those sports systems, um, and not even elite level, I mean, the rules tend to trickle down, right? So anyone who wants to access sport has to in some ways perform as though they have one of those three kinds of disabilities. And I, I think it speaks to exactly why critical disability studies is um, so important as both an area of politics action and, and indeed scholarship. Can you, uh, many listeners will have a passing familiarity with the idea of critical disability studies, but could you explain why it's important in your mind and what it means to you and how it connects, you, you mentioned Foucault, how it connects to the sort of theoretical influences you use or draw on? most like to think about it is, this is very much a, the way I like to take up disability. Um, I think it really began as uh, kind of out of the social models coming out of the US and the UK. And the base idea of this is, yeah, there's body variation. There's differences in our bodies. Um, but why certain, certain variations come to be categorized a certain way, come to be excluded, come to be... Um, understood as negative, um, come to have fewer social opportunities, those problems are social, and they're not actually in the bodies. And so a lot of early critical disability studies tried to sort of separate the body from the social problems, right? I mean, buildings don't have to be built up with 10 stairs. There's nothing natural about that configuration. So um, the fact that we build all our buildings, assuming everyone can walk upstairs, says a lot about the kinds of ages and the kinds of body types and the kinds of abilities that we expect and welcome in our spaces, in our public spaces in particular. And so that kind of architectural uh, example can also be done in terms of policy, right? So um, certain policies, like if you want access to certain kinds of funding, you have to fill out this form, but the, film is on, the form assumes you can see, the form assumes you have a certain kind of um, capacity to read and write. Um, the form assumes all kinds of things. So there's a lot of um, assumptions we make socially based on how we value certain people. Um, so that's sort of the basis of critical disability studies. Um, the kind of work I'm most interested in is a sort of crypt variety. And it takes, uh, crypt theory kind of takes as its um, core the idea that there's something actually really generative about disability. It's not that we only can think of it as a body problem or as a social problem, but we can also think of it as something that uh, enables us to understand our entire world differently. It's something that enables us to, precisely because it's not, it can't be normalized, helps us to reimagine how we do things. And that could be technology, that could be relationships, that could be theory. Um, and so that's the kind of disability studies that interests me most, is um, how can the experience of disability um, 
and the the ways it just really can't be normalized help us reimagine how we could do the world differently. You actually are involved in a lot of creative and artistic work. How does how does art connect to a critical disability studies perspective and indeed activism? Um, that's been a, a more recent addition. It's funny. My very first film was called Gimp Bootcamp, and it's available online. But it was actually my first sort of in some ways try at autoethnography, and it it really came out of I was starting to feel more getting harder. My breath was starting to get worse, um, and it was hard for me to go and give a lot of talks. And so I, I sort of thought that film might be an interesting way of being able to spread certain ideas without my body having to be there constantly. And this film in particular ended up being this kind of cathartic way of taking all these, um, I mean, almost everything that Trixie Kane, this character, says at the beginning comes directly out of articles written about me in my career, quite um, astoundingly ableist stuff. Um, and so it was, and took all these sort of experiences I had every day and was able, I was able to sort of uh, turn them on their head a little bit, uh, change them by two or three degrees to bring out the humor and to sort of show, in some ways, making fun of ableism, making fun of the kinds of assumptions and ways that we think um, around disability. Um, and it was really cathartic in a lot of ways. It was a way to sort of deal with all the sort of microaggressions that happen every day. Um, when you experience disability and then it kind of took off and it hit a lot of you know festivals and then festivals and it's actually still sometimes playing in festivals it just really kind of had a life that I wouldn't have necessarily expected so that was my first in and then I met this amazing um, arts community uh, they do performing arts and dance integrated dance called Cripsy well they weren't called Cripsy at the time but um, and I came to sort of help them make a film about themselves and then ended up getting pulled in and <laughs> Before you know it, was sort of helping as sort of one of the artistic associates, the artists that helped sort of run the organization, and we sort of branched off and called ourselves Cripsy. And so on the one hand, it's sort of this interesting biographical aside, but I've come to really believe that art is a really interesting and crucial way to do theory. Um, that we have a lot of knowledge. I mean, a lot of disability studies focuses a lot on... Um, they, they, because of the impairment disability divide I talked about earlier, where you have this variation in your body and the disability is what's social, there's a lot of early theory that kind of ignores the body altogether. Um, and I think, um, in particular dance, but I think a lot of art has ways of bringing the body back into the equation and really um, acknowledging and valuing embodied and lived knowledge that come from people with impairments and disability communities. Um, and the kinds of theorizing people do every day to try and think through and thrive in communities that are, aren't, aren't set up for them even to survive. And so I think art has been a really interesting way for me to learn that and access that, both in myself and in my communities. It, it creates a really fascinating picture because you've laid out a, a quite extensive set of sporting experiences. And then, of course, you've wandered into and, and, and been quite productive in the area of art and understanding its connection to theory and, and activism. How does that then fit within the shift into a university uh, research and teaching setting? Um, what, what's that shift been like and, and what attracted you to it? I remember finishing my undergrad and thinking I wouldn't do a master's until I had something to say and then it wasn't until I started being in the middle of wheelchair like in the Paralympic Games that I actually realised um, Actually, no one read my friend's master's thesis. <laughs> <laughs> and so it wasn't about having something to say. It was about having something that you really needed to ask. Um, 
that you just were dying to learn about, um, that the process itself had to be worth it. And so when I went to the Paralympic Games, I just was struck with such juxtaposition of the kind of, you know, these people running it, just saying, oh, we're empowering you, we're empowering you, we're empowering you. And then you're like, oh, well, I'd like to have a say and have it done. And you just get shot down faster than you could possibly imagine. Um, and so these kinds of juxtapositions in the sport I loved, I loved playing, I loved being part of these communities, but, you know, able-bodied white men were telling us what to do with our bodies and what to do with our sport in ways that um, uh, were, were far more intensive than anything I'd ever seen when I played uh, able-bodied sport. Um, and so I was really sort of taught, caught by this juxtaposition, and then, of course, I went straight to the literature to think, okay, well, let's do some research, let's find out, you know, who else has criticized this, and what you find is almost everyone at that time who had published anything about the Paralympic Games um, was saying they were non-disabled, they had never played in it, and they were mostly people who were coaches and classifiers and, and ran the sport saying how wonderful they were and how wonderful and empowering the games were. And so it's not that in some ways they aren't wonderful in certain ways, but I really believe if something is important, then it has to be open to critique. I mean, the only way we can make something better, the only way we can make sure that something has the political possibility it could is for it to be open to critique. And for the entire history of the Games, it has been almost entirely um, closed to critique, especially from the people it most considered. So that was a burning question for me, is how that comes to be. And that's kind of what took me to my master's. And I thought, I'll never do a PhD. <laughs> But that just sort of opened more and more burning questions, and I followed all the way here. And you really, I think, quite perceptively take direct aim at available accounts of and histories of the Paralympics. Is how have you you taken that experience and and an idea and then turned it into a project, um, which is of course a different thing when you're actually trying to write a PhD or conduct research. Yeah. I mean, I think the hardest thing for me is you spend a lot of time reading stuff that makes you angry. <laughs> it's, it's the hardest kind of thing. Um, one thing I try and do, and maybe I've done a better job later than I did in the beginning, was to try and hold the generosity for the people you're writing about as well. I mean, I think everyone that I'm writing about who wrote those histories wrote from places of absolutely wanting to do a good thing and believing this to be a positive thing. And in so many, there's so many parts about it that are positive. And maybe this doesn't answer your question, but I feel like for me it was about on the one hand, having to hold true to, yes, but your intentions are can be really great and the effects can be really dangerous. And these two things can coexist. And so how do we hold the mirror up and say, yeah, okay, you have these intentions, but look at the effects. And so how can we change this so that these things you're doing that you're hoping you're doing good things can actually, you know, stop being quite so dangerous. Could you speak to, I mean, what are some of those effects? Um, the problem the games, I think... Um, it's not empowerment. I mean, it's not empowerment to have, um, I mean, it's the equivalent of saying that college athletes are empowered, right? When other people are making money off of you, when other people are making decisions on what's right for you, when when athletes have protested in the past and wanted particular things, they've been had their careers ended, um, when athletes rarely get access to paying jobs, so post-retirement, you know, they don't get opportunities often to run the sports that they played with, to ref for the sports, to coach the sports that they played with. So it really means that basically you have these thoroughbred horses that then get sent to meatpacking when they're finished. Do you know what I mean? Like there's really a sense that um, athletes are good and useful so long as they're competing at a high level for you, but the moment they're not, um, they, they really 
I mean, they retire often with major shoulder injuries, not able to wheel properly, almost no money, you know, not, not same kind of sponsorship, not the same kinds of other opportunities that come from non-disability sport. So I think that's definitely one of the problems. I think another problem is the, the booming voice that this kind of thing is empowering, that doing things for disabled people and not with them, <laughs> um, I, I think it's just a really, really, really dangerous message. And you know, I went through, I did this very informal research and I asked everyone I knew to name three disabled people they never met. And I had yet to find anyone who could name someone other than an athlete. So the, I mean, the most dominant image of disability, um, particularly in Canada, um, is really that of Paralympic athletes. And that's the, they're either getting the pity of the charity posters or they're getting the Paralympics. And none of those are telling the story of, I think, very real social barriers that we can change, um, that, we, that we can make better, that, that we, we, we have the power to change rather than telling the story of people overcoming their bodies, their, overcoming their individual bodies. And I think, for me, the most dangerous part of this kind of inspirational narrative, um, I should back up and say I spend a lot of time on the inspirational narrative because I found a lot of people were writing articles about me with the same story. And parts of the story are true, right? It's like, oh, she was a good athlete. And then this disease happened. Well, of course, this is a disease I've had my whole life. And then they talk about it as tragedy. And then they're like, and now she's overcome it, you know? And um, um, and when I tried to challenge this and have a different story, just almost no one in the media would be willing to even tell a different story. And so that was sort of one of the things that, that really caught my eye. And as I've done more research, I've sort of realized what was it about this inspiration there that was really bugging me and um, one of the problems for me is when you tell when you're celebrating people for overcoming their disabled bodies you're often at the same time validating the kind of blame for disabled people who don't suddenly just overcome um, and the truth is a very very small percentage of people who even have access to Paralympic sport um, you'll notice the Paralympic sport in Canada is incredibly white it's incredibly urban um, it's a very, very small level of, uh, small range of impairments. Like I say, you know, less than 10% of all the impairments in Canada can even um, try out for a sport in Paralympic Games. Um, and you're dealing with even low levels of those impairments for the most part. Um, so it's, it's not a true story. It's not a story that we can all just, you know, pull ourselves up by our shoestrings <laughs> mm. or uh, wheel spokes, you know, and just overcome. The truth is there are very real financial and physical and policy um, and economic and racial and historical barriers to people even getting above the poverty line, getting a chance um, at, a, at a, you know, a meaningful uh, life where they get meaningful choice to be involved in things in their communities. And so I think it actually is telling a really big lie <laughs> in a lot of ways. You know, it's taking this small, small, small um, percentage of the population and telling the story as if this is sort of if everyone just tried, they could do this. Um, at the same time, I think erasing all the sort of um, political situations that people with disabilities find themselves in, but also the political situ situations that, that I think are also mirrored within the Paralympics in terms of the sort of glass ceiling that a lot of disabled people experience. And what, what's been the response to your research? I mean, I think they're powerful arguments and they're, and they're very well argued and, and there's plenty of evidence to support them, but... You spoke about good intentions earlier. What's been the, the, the sorts of responses you've, you've received? Um, I, think, I think my expectation was that, well, my first expectation was probably no one would read them. <laughs> and then, um, 
And in fact, actually, the first time I published in Discipline Society, the editors wrote back so we can't find anyone to review it. And they actually had me, I had to sort of write a footnote to explain what the Paralympics were because no one in critical display studies was writing about sport, or Paralympic sport at all. Um, and so display studies, this was sort of new to them, but also in sort of areas like adapted physical activity, it was also really new to them to have a critical kind of voice about um, Paralympic movement. Um, so I think I thought, first of all, no one's going to read it. And then secondly, I thought no one from my past sport career is going to talk to me again. And actually, it's been quite the opposite. I mean, the, every athlete I know who's read it um, has actually written really, really um, great feedback back and just talking about, like, how much it mirrored their experience and how much they could see their own experience in it and um, how it was just, like, so great to have this thing named. It's sort of like, in some ways, you're being gaslit constantly. This people, You're feeling like you're being pushed down. And people are like, no, I'm empowering you, pushing you down. No, I'm empowering you. How I think uh, freeing it was for them to realize that no, no, th these dynamics do exist. Um, and people who love the sport, people who are coaching the sport. And I went on to coach the sport years after I wrote that uh, thesis. It's not that you hate sport, right? But acknowledging the complexity and, and the difficult things in it. So, yeah, from fellow athletes, the uh, response has been really, really positive. Um, and interestingly, you know, some of the people whose histories I write about have been incredibly generous and continue to cite and work off of the critiques and their work going forward. And then two or three of the people I don't think have ever read it or are particularly interested in reading it. Um, some of the nice things, I think people don't come across it unless they're wanting to hear the critique, unless they're wanting to, to think deeper and, about it. Um, and actually, they've had a number of organizations come up and um, I've been able to influence some, like wanting me to come and look at their policies and trying to think how to change some of the dynamics I'm talking about, uh, the Canadian Par Parliament Committee um, being one of them. So, um, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot more positive response than I thought there'd be. And um, I think I just maybe have increased gen feeling of... of I think the generosity of the people involved in that, I think people are trying to do their best, but I think there have to be room for critical voices for that to be possible. And what does your approach to disability sport tell us about sport and physical cultures more generally? I mean, how does it change in your mind the way we need to think about sport as a, as a set of cultural form and physical practices? Uh, that's a really good question. I think. Most of us have been going the other way around, but I think there's a lot of really, really great work in sport that's just never been applied to Paralympic sport. I mean, almost every critique you could have of the Olympic Games, you could have of the Paralympic Games, um, plus more. <laughs> um, and so I think there's a lot of work in, in that way to be done. Um, but I do think it does go the other way as well. I think um, sport is an incredibly embodied experience and a lot of that embodied experience is about pain, is about injury and what happens and most people who leave sport leave because of a career ending injury and I think there's a lot um, about critical discipline studies that can start to kind of help us comprehend what's going on there. One of the most helpful ideas in, in my mind is that of compulsory able-bodiedness which is a great theory uh, first sort of explained by a guy named Robert McGurr. Um, and really, it's this idea that able-bodiedness, it's, it's barring off Butler and ideas around gender. But the idea is basically that no one is really able-bodied, right? You think of like who we think of the, of the utmost, the pinnacle of able-bodiedness, we think, oh, elite athletes, right? And they spend half their time in physio with like braces on and limping, right? Um, 
you know, it's really a big farce, right? I go in classrooms and I tell people, okay, everyone who's able-bodied, stand up. And then I go through, I'm like, okay, can you run five miles? I don't even care how quickly. Can you just run five miles? And of course, half the people sit down. And then, okay, can you read the board without your glasses on? And, you know, half of them remains step down. And I mean, just this idea that able-bodiedness, that this sort of, this norm that we imagine actually exists is kind of one big farce. And yet we're, in some ways, because we fail, we're constantly pushed to try and perform as if, as if we are really able-bodied. My best example of that is, um, uh, I have a, a parent who, you know, had a, a bad hip and so had trouble doing a lot of the kinds of things they used to love to do. And when I'm like, oh, why don't you just, you know, borrow one of my tools? I've got a hand cycle, I've got wheelchairs, I've got, you know, I've got all these things going around. And it was really hard for them to do that because to sit in that equipment meant that they were disabled. Um, I think it's a really, really, really common kind of experience um, for aging people in particular, um, but also I think for athletes and the kinds of uh, wear and tear that happen in their bodies. So I think there's a lot about embodiment, about the ways we imagine our bodies and our capacities and the kinds of um, ways we're expected to perform in our bodies, um, our relationships to pain, to injury, to aging, um, that could be, I think, could draw a lot from disability studies. Um, and I'm really actually excited as I start to see disability studies trickle into the picture. I'm really excited to see where that goes. And if you could recommend a, a book or an article, it might be old or new, that everyone listening should read, in your opinion, what would it be? Um, if they've never had any access to disability studies, probably my first thing would be Eli Clare has this beautiful book called Pride and Exile, Exile and Pride, Exile and Pride, um, it's just gorgeous, it's sort of, um, it's a personal narrative mixed with essay, uh, beautifully written, and does amazing work of sort of teasing out um, the embodied and the social um, of disability, but also of class and race and gender all sort of at once, and it's just this beautiful, exquisite very short, um, inexpensive little book that would be just a really great introduction to people who are interested in thinking more critically about bodies and, and, and society. With, with Rio only a few months away, um, do you have any observations on the, the possible implications of the Games for, for disability politics and disability communities at this moment in time? Um, I wish I had more hope for what that would be. I mean, every year... Um, right about now, you're going to see the ramping up of the advertisements for the Paralympic Games, and they're all going to be, you know, the perfect example of the super crap. They're all going to be over, you know, this person overcame these obstacles. Um, I sort of try and reach sometimes one r reporter at a time to try and tell more complex stories. Sometimes that works. Um, I think there can be. One of the, the positive things of the games can be that in some places where they would never have the funds to institutionally create more accessible um, uh, subway stations, structure like that, that the Paralympic Games do sort of require some work being done on that. And so it can actually create architecturally some really important access. Um, but in the same way that the Olympics do, it tends to drive up prices in the area. People who are homeless um, have the least amount of money tend to be chased from their homes. Um, in this case, things getting built and so on themselves tend to injure people in really significant ways that are being underpaid. And so um, anytime you're talking about disability, it's really important to realize that over 80% of disabled people um, in Canada and more than that worldwide uh, are 
I live in poverty, live in extreme poverty. Um, so <laughs> anything like the games, which is incredibly bad, the Olympic games and Paralympic games are incredibly bad for people who live in poverty. <laughs> and there's a lot of research that shows this. And so even before you talk about media representation, the Olympic games and Paralympic games are incredibly bad for disabled people for that reason. And that reason even alone. Um, but I think there is, because disability comes to the spotlight, I think 90% of the media is going to focus on people overcoming their bodies, on the fun tools that people use, and on um, the sort of inspirational kind of stories. But there's a possibility every time those stories are told that someone can mess with it, that someone can crip it, that someone can try and tell a different story. And so each Olympics, I try and hold out for that. Those reporters and artists and, and athletes who are doing that important work. And a, a final question, what are you working, I mean, you're about to take up a new position, what are you working on now, and what, in your case, what can we look forward to reading, seeing, or hearing about over the next few years? I'm just finishing a book prospectus uh, based on my dissertation, which actually talks about, it's kind of based mostly in Canada as a case study, but talks about the history of physical fitness um, and the relationship between disability and race uh, in, in Canada. And so it kind of traces from the 1890s to current situations and how disability and physical fitness have been used in very particular ways that have been very helpful for some disabled people and incredibly um, harmful for others. Um, in particular, uh, the way that race has played very heavily in the history of disability policy, um, some ways often through physical fitness. So that book will be coming out soon, and um, I think my hope, what came out of that book, was realizing that we really have a long way to go to really make sport and physical fitness, like I say, available to the other 90% of disabled people. Um, and I'm excited about that project of doing that, and I think some people are actually making their own sport and activities and art to, to fill those gaps. So my research right now has really been focusing on exactly that. What are communities doing to fill those gaps? What what creative, generative, amazing kinds of activities and communities and um, ways of going about things do people um, create, uh, not top-down but bottom-up, to try and create opportunities for them to be able to paint, play, um, uh, act, be activists, um, participate in every part of society without necessarily the benevolent help of others. That sounds like the sort of work that actually gives the term research impact actual meaning. Um, so without being too sardonic about you know, the, the, the policy talk around universities at this moment, but I really look forward to reading it. Look, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, look, I, I wish you all the best in your, in your future activities. Thank you so much. I look forward to hearing this and the rest of your podcast from now on.